Is it a time for you to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and fill this house with splendor. Consider how you have fared. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is really warm. And you earn wages to put them into a bag with holes. Yet now, take courage. The Lord says, take courage. Take courage, work, for I am with you. My ruach, my spirit abides among you. Do not be afraid. Then the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the people stood in awe of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, seminary professors say before one preaches, one should always deal with the sitzim laban of the text. What do we know about the setting in life? Remember 587, the dreaded Babylonians, forerunners of today's Iraqis, marched southward into what would today be Israel, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. When the people had run out of food and water, the Babylonians breached the walls took everything of value out of Solomon's magnificent temple and the palace of the king, set both of them on fire, tumbled down the walls that protected the city, burned the gates off their hinges, brought in all the king's sons, killed them in front of their father, gouged out the king's eyes, and force-marched him and the best and brightest off to exile in Babylon. Fifty years later, think Iran called at that time in history the Persians, marched on Babylonians, forerunners of today's Iraqis. Cyrus was their king. He was victorious. He told the Jews they could go home. Not all went home. Those who did found it was extremely difficult to reestablish themselves in Judah the indigenous people had reclaimed all the watering holes, all the wheat fields, all the best farmland, all of the vineyards. Life was difficult. And 17 years after they got home, the temple at the top of the Temple Mount still lay in ruins, right where it had been burned to the ground 67 years before. When we were dealing with Jeremiah, we were dealing with a 40-year prophecy when we deal with Haggai, we're dealing with four months in the year 520. Cyrus has died. Darius has become king of Persia. He gives the Jews permission to take home the gold and silver and bronze that was stripped from their temple and to rebuild Haggai's message for today. How can you live in your paneled houses, he said, and yet my house lies in ruins. And Handel chose the next words for the bass to sing in the Messiah. Once again, in a little while, I will shake all nations, the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry lands, for them to give up their treasures and bring them to my house. 
What about our treasures? How do we use them? The last time Gail and I were in London, one of the things she wanted us to do was to see the homes of some of the famous people in literature, in the arts. We went to see John Keats' home, where he wrote some of his most imaginative, beautiful poetry, discovered he had tuberculosis. Uh, he went to Italy to try to get to a drier clime. A few months later, he died, so very, very young. We went to Keats' home. She wanted to see Charles Dickens' home, and we went there as well. Much will be written about Dickens the next three or four months because we're coming up on his 200th birthday in February. He was born in 1812. You recall that Charles Dickens' father uh, lost what little bit of money that he had, and Charles, as a boy, early teens, was made to work in a blacking factory, it was called, underground, sort of a cellar in London, uh, horrible fumes that he had to breathe in. He worked 12 and 14-hour days. But he learned to write, and he wrote well. He started to gain some popularity in his 20s, but his first really big paycheck came when he was 35. He published Dumby and Son and was paid what would be an equivalent today of a half million dollars. He had gotten married. He and his wife would have 10 children. And then he decided he really wanted somebody younger and prettier. And so he told the wife and 10 kids to go. He took up with a mistress, an actress there in London. And now the money just seemed to flow in all directions, trying to keep up an estranged wife and 10 kids, trying to keep up an expensive mistress in her house. He always had relatives coming by begging for money, begging for money. He was working harder and harder. In one of the books about his life, a biography says that he would have a servant come in and pour cold water over his head. He would towel off and continue to write. Near the end of his life, he was out doing readings, trying to promote his writings. He had a, a racing pulse rate. Doctors who've looked at the history say he probably had very high blood pressure. He died at 58. As Haggai would say, how's that working out for you, Charles? How's that working out for you? How can you enjoy living in your paneled house and you're not expressing real worthship, worthship in the Lord? He wrote the Christmas Carol. He might have seen himself as Marley, maybe he saw himself as Ebenezer Scrooge, except he never quite came to that turnaround that Ebenezer Scrooge knew, not ever. So the second important thing is here, Haggai asks, how's it faring with you? You plant, but you don't harvest enough. You eat, you're never really full. You drink, you're still thirsty. You're out there earning your wages to put them in bags that have holes in them. How's that working out for you? Are you a reader of Joan Didion? She was a writer for Vogue magazine 50 years ago. Met a young writer with Time magazine. They got married. He was the brother of a Hollywood producer named Dominic Dunn. Dominic Dunn encouraged his brother and his new bride to come out to California. He made a way for them to become screenwriters. They continued to write novels at this point. They made a lot of money. Discovered they weren't going to have any children. Adopted a little girl. 
weren't sure what to name her. They looked at a map of Mexico. Quintana, that same good, named her Quintana. Had a lot of troubles with her. She was a troubled child, even though they got her when she was an infant. One problem after another. You may know that in 2004, uh, Joan Didion's husband suddenly had a massive heart attack and died. She hadn't really thought about being a widow woman, so she wrote a book about it called A Year of Magical Thinking. It's similar in some ways to C.S. Lewis, writing about the tragic death of his wife. It's a journey through grieving and grieving and how it gets a little better and then it gets worse and then it gets a little better and then it gets worse. And It sold a lot of books. Twenty months after her husband died, Quintana got very sick. She had one infection after another, was in the hospital most of the last two years of her life, died of pancreatitis, 39 years old. Joan Didion has now written a book about that called Blue, Blue Nights. I was interested in what the reviewer of this second book said. You don't want to read Joan Didion's book if you're looking for a boost, if you're looking for something optimistic, if you're looking for something hopeful. All she does is explain to you how she has descended into the depths of hopelessness. How's that working out for you? Everything going well for you, where you're placing your value, where you're placing your worth? Number three. Yet now, says the Lord, take courage. Take courage. Take courage. I'm with you. My spirit abides with you. Thursday night, several of us went to a special dinner honoring Sarah Wagner, one of our own from here at Boston Avenue. Sarah's retiring after being head of the Tulsa Food Bank for the last 21 years. I knew some things about Sarah, being her pastor all these years. I learned a lot more Thursday night. The Reverend Eve Marie Campbell did a great job telling the people what Sarah means to our children's division here at our church. Children love her. She's been a great teacher, wonderful role model for them. So many have been tutored along, mentored by Sarah. One of her brothers was on the program. He's an ordained preacher several states away, and he had a lot of things to say about Sarah and about their family. Sarah is one of six children, big family, came along right at the end of the Great Depression during World War II, hardworking, God-fearing. All six of them have spread out across the country from the East Coast all the way to California. Sarah never married, has no children, no grandchildren. She's given her life to feeding hungry people. 21 years ago, she was asked to come to Tulsa, Oklahoma. She was working in the Carolinas. By that time, she already had almost 25 years' experience leading organizations similar to this one. She came to Tulsa. Our food bank was 10 years old. We had started from nothing in 1970, and by 1980... Uh, we were finally, uh, I started in 80, and by 90, uh, we were now moving 2 million pounds of food through a warehouse every year. Sarah came. When she came to Tulsa 21 years ago, 1990, uh, she said she was just overwhelmed by the need. Overwhelmed. Every time she would mention the numbers Thursday night in her response, 
about how many children we have in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who go to bed at night not knowing where their next meal will come from. She discovered there were more than 70,000 children in a five-county area who get up in the morning with no food for breakfast. No food for breakfast. They come to school and they're fed. They're fed again at lunch. What happens to them when they go home Friday afternoon? There is no food till they get back to school Monday morning. So Sarah started trying to rally the resources. It was overwhelming. To fix a backpack of food for children that will last them from Friday afternoon late until Monday morning when they get back to school, something that's non-perishable, something that's highly nutritious, something they can ration themselves so that they can make it through the weekend. She needed money. She said, I was 50 years old. I went home to my mother and father. I poured out my heart. There's too much need. I have too few resources. I don't think I can do this. And her father said, Sarah, let me remind you of something. When you were in the third grade, you were given your third grader Bible at church. And your Sunday school teacher said, now all of you third graders have new Bibles. By next Sunday morning, I'm going to ask each one of you what's your favorite verse. And Sarah said, you know, I was eight years old. I thought she meant read this whole book by next Sunday and tell me which verse you think is the best. And she said, my father sat down with me and said, no, no, Sarah, I don't think that's what she meant. I think she meant, let's look at some of the best verses we know now and let you pick the one you like best of all of them. So she said, my dad sat down with me and he started going through the Bible, saying, oh, this is a good one, the 23rd Psalm. Oh, this is a good one, Sermon on the Mount. But Sarah said, I was drawn to one he read me from a prophet called Micah. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Her father said to her on this visit when she was 50, wait right here. And he went to his private special things and brought back a drawing. He said, Sarah, after you picked your favorite verse and you told your Sunday school teacher the next Sunday, she asked each of you to, could you paint your favorite verse? What do you think that verse means? Could you paint something? Her father had kept this drawing since Sarah was eight years old. She didn't remember it at all till he produced it. She had drawn a little blonde-haired girl, which she was at the time, feeding hungry children. And he said, Sarah, you've known what God wanted you to do since you were eight years old. Go back to Tulsa. You can do this. Go back to Tulsa. When she got here, we were passing two million pounds of food a year through this huge food bank. She got the Reynolds Foundation Group to build a complete new facility this year. Sarah has led volunteers, 10,000 of them, into processing and shipping out in five counties here, 17 million pounds of food. How's it going for you? How's it going for you? Who are the people you're helping or failing to help? Number four. The people decided to obey the Lord their God and to stand in awe of the Lord. 
There's a new book out about a woman named Laura Scroff. Laura grew up in an abusive family, had an abusive alcoholic father. But she had others who were kind and helpful and encouraging. She got a good education. She came along just at the right time when more doors than ever before were opening to women, and she got a really good job with the New York Times. By the time she was 35, she was living in a high-rise apartment in Manhattan and walking every morning to a really responsible, well-paying job. One day she walked to work, and she saw a little boy, a little African-American boy. She'd find out later he was 11 years old, thin, gaunt, holding out his hand to her saying, could you spare some change? Now she said, I've learned in New York City, don't make eye contact, keep walking. So I didn't make eye contact, I just kept walking. And I'd gone several steps when suddenly something deep inside of me said, Laura, turn around, Laura. And she said, I turn around and I walk back to this little boy. And I ask, if I gave you my change, what would you do with it? And he said, I would eat. And she said, how about if I buy your lunch? And she walked him down the street to a McDonald's. She asked, you like burgers? He nodded his head. How about fries? He nodded his head. How about a malt? He said, chocolate. And she sat down and visited with him while he ate. Found out his name was Maurice. That his father had disappeared when he was six. That his mother was regularly shooting herself up with heroin and crack cocaine. Well, he ate, drank. She said, Maurice, I'm glad to have met you. She went on to work. Next day, there he was, hand out. She said, morning, Maurice, went on to work. The next day, the next day, the next day. End of the week, she said, how about if I buy your lunch? And they went to McDonald's again. And she listened and she talked. And the third week, she said, how about if you come up to my place for dinner tonight? And she took him up to her apartment. She taught him how to set the table. Taught him how to help clean up and wash the dishes. And during the meal, they talked. And the next Monday night, she invited him up to her place for dinner. When Christmas came, she taught him how to decorate a Christmas tree. He had never done that before. She bought him his first bicycle. And that spring, she took him to see the New York Yankees play baseball. Maurice is 37. He has a wife and children. He owns his own construction business in Manhattan. Once a month, he invites Laura over to his apartment. Her children run. His children throw their arms around their Aunt Laurie, and they all have dinner together. She said, I think it all changed for me after I'd known him just a couple of weeks. And I said, Maurice, if you're standing out here on this corner, you're not going to school. If I made you lunch every day, would you go to school? He said he would. She said, you come by my apartment every morning. I'll have it ready. And he said, could you put it in a fresh paper bag with the top rolled down? At my school, if somebody comes in with a lunch in a paper bag with the top rolled down, it means somebody cares a lot. And I said, Maurice, I want to be that person 